History Lecture 67, Rabbi Bleiweiss. We are talking about Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. We gave a preface, preamble to his life, that there was never, as uh, the Mara tells us, never so much Torah and greatness in one place, not since Moshe, not until Ravashi. In Argamar and Makos, he tells us, coming up soon actually, we're, we're a few days away from, or a couple weeks away from this. He says on Yehuda Aleph, Harbe Torah Lamadati Mirabosai. I've learned a lot of Torah from my rabbis. Yoser, but I've learned even more from my peers, my chavrusas. Yoser Mikulam. And from my own students, I've learned more than any of them. Uh, I would identify with this statement if you ever want to learn something seriously, go into teaching. Best way to learn. Uh, I do this purely selfishly. The, uh, that you, you know, they sharpen you, they ask you questions, you think, I don't know. Even when you're preparing, it makes you have to learn with extra care. What? Uh-oh, Barack's going to ask me about this one. I better make sure I know my stuff well, kind of thing, right? And it keeps you on, keeps on your toes. Much like just the act of having a harusa, the, the second statement that he makes, is so much more effective than when you're learning by yourself. Because when you're learning by yourself, it's a passive experience. Essentially, you're not really doing anything. Um, you're not. You're not going otherwise. Do you know when you have to take an idea and then articulate it and, and convey it to the other guy? Do you know how much more you're working, you're, <coughs> you're you're producing, and when you try to formulate it and give it over in terms that he can understand, you've said so much more. It's one of the reasons why um, sometimes when people write generic books that are not necessarily directed towards any audience. They don't read very well. But the same person can write the same content as a letter directed towards another person, and suddenly it's very engaging. Because they're not just writing out there to anybody anybody out there to whom it may concern. They're actually <coughs> envisioning the person, their responses, their objections, and it's all in there the way they write. It's, 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 uh, anyway, there's, there's lots, of, lots of depth as with everything that uh, our rabbis teach us. So Rabbi Yudha Nasi says, says important things. He is... Alone in the Talmud is being called Rabbeinu HaKadosh. The um, Rabbah tells us the introduction to the Yad, our holy rabbi. Um, he's specifically referred to as Rabbeinu HaKadosh because he never looked, as we said, at his Mila. He never put his hand beneath his belt. Rabbi Mir Shapiro used to say he had a lot of balabatim like that. That's a good line. Meaning, in other words, in the case of Rebbe, it was because of, of, of sneers, of, of modesty. In the case of what, what Rebbe Mayor Shapiro was making a play on words, he said he, he, had, um, he knew a lot of Balabatim and never put their hands beneath their belt and extracted their wallets to give money. Uh, right, so that was, that was his joke uh, on the subject. Funny, yeah. yeah, it was funny. He was careful on himself. For example, we know he, not just he, his whole household, including his servants, did something they didn't have to do. They ate chulin batara. They ate, um, you know, in a state, they ate regular food in a state of purity like the Kohanim would eat in the times of the base of Mikdash, but it's a very high level. And there were still Kohanim miyuchasim from his day who also ate chulin batara uh, in anticipation that the base of Mikdash might be rebuilt any day. Clearly, in order to do that, it, if the Gemara mentions this, it does mention this in Psochim, the fact that they could do this meant that they obviously still had ashes of the paraduma left, but not much longer. It mistama. This is among the last. This is about the last time we hear about such a thing that people could could actually have the luxury of being careful eating kulin bitara. He was here's something that's interesting. We call him Rabbeinu Hakadosh, the number that's kadosh. What number signifies kedusha? Logically, if you had to guess. Seven. Seven is Kadosh. Uh, seven is Kadusha in this world. Eight goes beyond this world. So seven is Kadusha. So he is the seventh Nasi since Hillel institutionalized the, uh, the term. He's the seventh Nasi. The seventh is the Kadosh. We find, for example, the seventh candle, the Ner Ma'aravi, the western candle on the menorah, is the, is the one with greatest Kadusha. So he's considered like the Ner Ma'aravi. From the generation from Avram Avinu, who was seven, seventh in line, seven generations later, came Moshe Rabbeinu. And like that, one finds many parallels along these lines. Gemara tells us that he would teach, and when Kriyashma, the time for Kriyashma came along, but he was teaching, he was giving shear, so he imperceptibly would cover his eyes, 
Thereby, he was fulfilling Kriyashma, he was makabal omachul shemayim, accepting upon himself the yoke of heavens, but not really taking a break, a, a long break in his teaching because he was concerned about being mevatal Torah. Maybe if he would stop teaching so the students wouldn't come. So uh, he, he accomplished both. Based on this, we have a practice of covering our eyes when we say uh, Kriya Shema. It also serves a double purpose. The Gemara Brachos tells us, this is, I mean, this is a Gemara Brachos and elsewhere Brachos we know in general with many halachos surrounding the basic idea that we should have complete undivided attention when we're receiving the heavenly yoke, and so we can't smell bad smells and see impure uh, visions and, and like that, so covering the eyes also serves that function. Uh, it's, Rabbi, it's Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. It's Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi who teaches, we're, we're considering that we're now winding down the period of time, and Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, the great Rebbe, Rebbe in the Mishnah, uh, is, is the figure that we're now considering now. It's his vorti, he has this famous idea, Rashi brings us in the Pasuk, uh, man, his mother, his father should fear and keep my Shabbases. And um, it's Rebbe who asks, why by Kibud Avaim in, in Parshas Yisro, we learn that it says, You have to honor your father and your mother. But when it comes to fearing, it says, You should fear your mother and your father. And Rebbe makes the observation that generally in human nature, people honor are more likely to honor their the mother because because she does stuff for him and so people are more naturally whereas the father is a figure of uh, you know dread often so we, we're not as eager or, or or we're not as naturally primed to uh, honor him and um, and conversely we're more inclined to fear our fathers just wait till your dad gets some kind of a thing and and over over the mother and so what the Torah is really coming to do is it's telling us to go against our nature going you know we have our grain and the Torah often Challenges us to rise above that and 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 do what's do what's correct. Rabbi Yudan Nasi teaches that it's tzaddik. Tzaddikim always should be dignified in the way they look, the way they're dressed. Um, and of course, he's using it metaphorically. You should behave yourself because at any time, you never know if the king is going to invite you spontaneously to the banquet, and you want to be ready to go to the banquet. And of course, the idea is if that's true, you know, in theory, you want to dress appropriately because the Rosh Hashiva may invite you. Some of the event, but of course, what he's really saying is morally, you want to behave yourself in life because you never know when we'll be invited to the king's banquet and you want to be in your best behavior. Rebbe has a number of very important uh, halachas that he teaches. It was his ancestor, the first Rebbe Gamliel, five generations back, who allowed widows to remarry, even based on the testimony. This is going to sound shocking from a Makos perspective. We're holding in Makos this year. One witness was enough. Why? Why were we? So, why was Rebbe Gamliel Hazakin so lenient with regards to a widow being able to remarry? She would be able to marry. She be, you remember what it's called? It's called an aguna, woman who's a chained woman. Because if think about it, her husband's lost at sea. If there's no proof that he died, she can never remarry. Because if, if she remarries, and it turns out that he comes back. She's an adulteress. Her kids are all mamzerim, and it happened. It happened during the Holocaust. We have stories like that. In Yuvamos. In Yuvamos, there's, there's certainly a lot of, lot of discussions like this. So Rabbi Gamliel said in extraordinary leniency that, you know, we could rely, even though we don't rely on one witness for almost anything, but we can rely on the testimony of one witness in order to allow such a woman to remarry. Rebbe takes it to the next level. He allows... A woman, a, a, a potential widow. I mean, you remember what 9-11? Men would call their wives anticipating the end was coming soon. Men called their wives, let me just finish the insight, um, and, and would try to give them a get, knowing that their bodies would disappear and maybe their wives would be agunas as a result. So Rebbe extends this. He says that we can rely not only on just one witness. He said you can rely on the, on the, on the testimony of other women who saw husbands drown, let's say. You could rely on the testimony of children. And he said, these are extraordinary coolants. If you realize how serious it is to give testimony and how much Rebbe's allowing, but he was concerned, will these women be stuck for the rest of their lives? He said, you can even rely on the testimony, not of any akum, not, not of any non-Jew, but he's, he calls it an akum hamasiach lefitumo. It's a good figure speech. It means if the guy comes along and he testifies formally, I know your husband, I saw him die, it's suspicious. We're not sure if we do it. But he's Messiah, right, exactly. That's Messiah Lefitumo. If you just overhear him saying, 
oh yeah, it was a terrible tragedy, and this person died, and that person died, and he's not giving formal testimony, he's just saying it, you can accept that. Rebbe said such a thing would be good. Elsewhere he allowed, you know, a captive woman, we assume a captive woman, you remember this back in the discussion of Yochanan Hyrcanus, a captive woman, we assume that bad stuff happened to her while she was in captivity. I don't have to elaborate on that, do I? Right, and maybe Nyavin, you understand what I'm talking about, right? So, you know, usually when she's taken captive, they do bad things to her, and such a woman who had, who was raped or, 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 or along those lines um, can't marry Cohen. So the Gemara in Kisubos tells us that Rebbe found a way, he allowed a shvuya, a, a captive woman, to marry a Cohen based on the testimony of her son, who was Messiah Lekutumo, the same, the same expression. He was just, he wasn't testifying, he was just saying, he was describing how, he was showing, he was telling his friends, I never left my mother's sight the whole time we were together, I was a loyal son, and so on. And in his story, what you can deduce from that was the fact that he was never without his mother, and therefore he would have known if something bad had happened. Apparently she was never sullied, she was never impurified, and based on that, based on his um, statement, Remy allowed her to marry a Cohen. There is this Roman Caesar, we've met him already. He's one of the more extraordinary figures of history. His name is Antoninus Pius Ben Severus. And from the earliest age, he was drawn to Rebbe. Sometimes our Gedolim were magnetic personalities. Not just, char- not just charisma, but their goodness, their wisdom. You wanted to be around them. And, and the Caesar saw that in, in Rebbe. There's a little bit, I mean, uh, if, you wanna, if you're interested in the academic side of things, how do we understand? According to the Roman archives, the fellow by the name of Antoninus Pius died in 161, and he was succeeded by his son-in-law, Marcus Aurelius. Maybe that means Marcus Aurelius was the figure that Chazal called Antoninus Pius. I don't get caught up in such distinctions because I don't care. I don't know why it really matters who's who. Chazal bring that Antoninus Pius was this Caesar who, had, who, who was drawn to Rebbe's greatness and would come ask Rebbe Shilas. And some of the Shilas are, are very famous. The Yerushalmi, for example, tells a story. He wanted to understand, could I be, when, when all the big tzaddikim in the world to come, in Olam Haba, at the end of days, they're going to eat from the Leviathan. Remember the Tanin, the great, the great sea creature that was created, and in the end of days, they're all going to feast on it, only if you're big tzaddik. He said, do I, as a, as a Caesar of Rome, do I have the potential of also partaking in that feast? And Rebbe said, yes. If you become a tzaddik, you, you also can become, you can feast on the Leviathan. Not that, you know, he's looking for a good steak dinner, but he, he wants to know, could he merit being among the righteous? So then he says, but okay, tell me something else then. If that's true, if I can eat from the Leviathan in the world to come, why can't I eat from the Korban Pesach in this world? Good question. Right? Antony's pie is pretty sharp there. Rebbe doesn't have a good, good answer. But he's drawn to Tyra and he starts learning. And then he does something extraordinary. We don't hear of this so much in history. He gives himself a brief smila. And then he asks Rebbe, did I do a good job? Can you check and see if my mila is kosher, is halachically acceptable? So, but Rebbe said, I've never looked at my own mila, which we said is Rebbeinu Akadosh. He's never looked down beneath the belt himself. He said, I'm certainly not going to look at somebody else's. Never looked at my own, so I'm not going to look at yours to see if it's kosher. But apparently, Antoninus Pius, Chazal tell us, converted secretly. And he kept it a secret throughout his life. But he was really Jewish. And he remained Caesar until his death. And he, Chazal tell us in another source in Kohelis Rabbah, that he ranks up there with some of the great converts of Jewish history. Who are they again? Who are some of our big names of famous converts? Uncle is for sure good. What? Rus. go back in time. Rus. Rachav for sure. Yisra is considered the father of the, of, the, of, the, of the converts, but Antoninus Pius is definitely worthy of being included in this list. The Caesar who converts and is drawn close and learns Torah with Rebbe. The Medrash elsewhere in Vaikar Rabbah says that he's actually the greatest of all the converts, which is quite a designation. Rebbe lived for most of his life in the end of the years in a place called Beit Sharim, one of the sites of the Sanhedrin. Anybody been to Beit Sharim before? Okay. One of the places... Uh, I try to take the yeshiva. It's one of the more thrilling places in Eretz Yisrael. Most people don't know about it. So he apparently was some, somewhere nearby because the Gemara tells us that he dug a tunnel underground where he could secretly, through the secret passage, come to Rebbe's house without being detected and then go back to his palace. And nobody, nobody would know it. And that's, where he, that's how he would learn a lot of Torah. 
he and Rebbe would eat together very often. Once he noticed during the week that there was a specific ingredient that was missing, they'd eaten a certain dish on Shabbos and it tasted fantastic. And he said, it's the same dish you're making now in the week, but it doesn't taste nearly as good. What's the pshat? He said, tell me what the missing ingredient is. There's no problem. I'm the Caesar. I'm the king of the world, of the Roman Empire. I have it somewhere, I'm sure, in my treasures. So what, what's that secret ingredient? And Rebbe said, not a chance, king. He said, the, that secret spe- spice, Shabbos itself. It's true. You ever try taking, tasting cholent after Shabbos? And it's uncanny. Right? It's just good. It's good. But it's never as good as on Shabbos. We saw a similar story with Rabbi Yeshua ben, pra- ben Hanania. Antoninus was one of the wealthier people who ever lived. What was the source of his wealth? The Gemara tells us in Sanhedrin that there was a treasure, an ancient treasure. In fact, we just had it in Parsha a couple weeks ago. Who buried the treasure? It's Yosef's treasure. How does Yosef have money? He traded everybody's money for the wheat during the seven years of famine and became literally the wealthiest man ever. And he took the treasure and buried it underground. And the Gemara tells us there were three parts of the treasure. That were, that were apportioned off to different people. Do you remember who, who had the original parts? Korach got one. According to one, one source, the other one went to Haman. We said that in this class. Um, according to another source, it's left, the third is left for the tzaddikim, the future days, the, the righteous people. But the Gemara Center tells us that one of the recipients was Antoninus. And Antoninus took his great fortune and shared it with Rebbe. And I mentioned last week, Rebbe also is one of the wealthy men of history, and this has been part of the source. In fact, we even know about this. Remember when Rivka Imenu goes? She has these twins that are in, in, the, in, in her belly. The, the kids are going around inside her belly, and she goes to inquire of Hashem. She goes to the yeshiva of Hashem and Aver, and she says, And one of the things that Hashem tells us, Rashi brings us there, that in the future... When, he, when Hashem says, Shnei goyim you've got two great nations in your belly, you're going to have these two great offspring, one from Yaakov and one from Esav. And they're going to be, and they're going to be an exception in history that they're going to get along, because almost never in history do we, do we find Yaakov and Esav getting along. And Rebbe and Antoninus is the famous exception to the rule. We have direct descendants living in harmony with one another. And there, the Rivka, what Rivka learns is that they're so wealthy. How wealthy were they? Neither of them ever lacked from their tables special foods, luxury items called chazeris kishos tsnon, uh, which are seasonal kinds of healthy foods, um, and they never lacked them in the winter or in the summertime. You realize, we who grew up in the Western world are spoiled rotten, that the fact that you have most of the main food, uh, fruits and vegetables, produce groups, all year round is weird and not the way most people consumed foods through history. You ever notice that? Right? And in Eretz Israel, it's much more normal to history that you get certain things certain times a year and then they're no longer in season. That's the way it usually is. But in the case of Antoninus and Rebbe, they had everything all the time. But it's, I, I think it's at our, um, I think it's to a, uh, Disadvantage to our disadvantage that it's like that because it means we appreciate things less. You know, we say Shechianu Dafka because the new fruit comes into season. That means we have an inherent appreciation because sometimes you only appreciate things when you have them because with the knowledge that sometimes you can't have them. But if you can have everything all the time, then nothing matters. We don't appreciate anything. Tanchuma tells us that Antoninus once asked Rebbe, "Is it okay to daven every every hour?" See, he said, I love Hashem so much, it's not enough for me to dive him just three times a day. I want to I break into tefillah every hour on the hour. Can I do that? So Rebbe said, oh, sir, can't do that. He says, Because you're going to be frivolous. You're going to be behaving in a way that's kind of putting down the greatness of Hashem. And Antoninus doesn't like the answer. He's not happy. He said, I want to daven. I, it was full of all kinds of, I, I don't know, I, I read into this, maybe this is the, 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 zealous, the zealous convert, the zealous Baal Shuvah who wants, who with the best of intentions just wants to serve Hashem all day, all night. Okay, but so Rebbe says you can't do it. But Antoninus was not satisfied. So Rebbe answered him indirectly. He came to him one morning and he said, Shalom Aleichem Melech. And uh, Caesar answered him, thank you very much, Shalom Aleichem Rebbe. And a few minutes later, Rebbe came back and he said, Shalom Aleichem. Shalom Rebbe. 
And again, Shalom Aleichem Rebbe, Melech, Melech, right? And uh, the king asked, why are you denigrating me like this? And Rebbe said, aha, aha. Call him Mosif Gorea. Sometimes when we do too much, we actually detract. It's better when you do it right once and leave it like that, right? Better to have concentrated kavana, right? That each of your acts should be, should be a form of a voda, that you should be careful. I know Rabbi Wein tells a story of one of his rebbies from the old world, of Mendel Kaplan. The boys were always amazed because it came time for Shmonasrei, and they assumed the great Rav from Europe, his davening, his Shmonasrei would take hours. But they were amazed that he finished quicker than most of the boys. And so they kind of felt, you know, like, isn't it true always the guy who davens longer is more from? No, isn't that the way it works? That was their assumption. You're right. You're right. It's not true necessarily. Um, but, but like, that's what they thought. If you daven longer, you're from her, no? So they um, once had the nerve to get up and ask from Mendel Kaplan, why does he daven shorter than most of them? And Rav Kaplan responded, he said, when I daven, I'm extremely aware of who I'm, da- who I'm standing before, and I try to be very organized, and I don't want to waste his time and say it properly, like a person going before a king. You don't want to waste his time. You don't want to be there and like, oh, and then there's my, you know, there's the this going on in my life. Even though God is in time bound. Clearly, clearly. It's purely for us. It's a way we show kavod. It's exactly this issue. Obviously, Hashem has no needs. He doesn't need our tefillah either. And he's certainly not limited in time. It's a question of attitude on our part. If we're too laid back with the Kodesh Baruch Hu, we start schmoozing it up, that's the problem. We should be aware, like we were coming before the King of Kings, uh, you know, we are coming before a human king, we, uh, we should be aware that uh, we should organize our words in advance. Antoninus asked Rebbe, the goof is the problem. It's the body that trips us up. It's the body that sins. Does the neshama take the rap for the goof? Does the neshama, is, 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 it, is it at fault for, for the problems of the body? So Rebbe sets up the famous, you know this? Rebbe sets up a very famous analogy. What is the analogy? The blind man who has a chiger, who has, a, who has somebody, like you say, somebody with dis- dis- physical disabilities, being carried on the shoulders of the blind man. So the man with the chiger is the eyes, as it were, and the, and the, and the, and the iver, the, the blind man, and they're able to steal together. And they, between the two of them, they steal the fruit. And then when the owner of the fruit tree comes along and says, hey, who stole my stuff? The blind man says, well, I, 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 yeah, not me. And the dad, I said, not me. I couldn't have done that. I couldn't have and, and, and of course, the owner of the, the owner of the fruit tree says, yeah, but you guys make a great team together. So, so to Rebbe saying, not for the neshama, uh, the goof wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't uh, be culpable and, and, and nor, nor the other way around. It's not the neshama's fault whatsoever. So, so there are a lot of things you can say. Here's a possible shot. One possible shot is that it's our neshama, which obviously connects us with the Kodesh Baruch Hu, and gives us even the potential, unique in, unique in all of the creation, for the Chirachovshis. We can choose what to do. I only know to do good because the neshama indicates that, that I have this higher consciousness. So when I do bad, that's a problem, specifically because I could have and should have done well. So if I allow the goof to take over, that means the neshama is slacking. On that level, they are a team, and they are, they're both responsible for one another. Antoninus asks, when the Yetzahara enters the being um, and begins to dominate uh, a human being, uh, the, 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 uh, really, from, from which age? How old is the child when the Yetzahara begins to dominate? So Rebbe answers, from Yetzirah, from the creation of the Neshama itself, there's the Yetzahara. But Antoninus doesn't like it. He said, he said, if it had a Yetzahara all the way back in the mother's womb, that when it, then when it exited the womb, it would exit kicking and scratching. He says, they don't believe the Yetzahara comes in until the, until the person's in this world. And, that's, and, and that seems to be the accepted answer, that we have a Yetzahara from the time of birth, and that's when, what is the child's first act? Screaming like crazy, keeping you up all night, let me tell you about it. All right, that's, that's when we understand the Yetzahara comes in. Many other famous dialogues. I'm just trying to give you a taste of uh, a sense of who these great people were. Rebbe Yehuda Hanasi had lots was involved with in the life and the lives of Klal Yisrael. He was one of these people. As we keep saying, he's great in Torah and great in in, um, in every other way. He was wealthy. He was Baal Chesed, but his Chesed was with every last detail. So the Gemara in Baba Metzia tells us how Rebbe Shimon Bar Yochai. His son, Rabbi Elazar, who we've learned a lot about, had his own son. 
His name was Yossi, and it's not explained there exactly how he went off the Derech, but he was apparently somebody that hung out with the wrong crowd. And Gemara expresses it in very, very uh, strong terms about um, him hanging around with the harlots, and they would hire him out for certain services and so on. And Rebbe made it his priority. He saw the holy family of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and Rabbi Lazar, and he went after this son, Yossi, and he makarived him. And he had very unorthodox practices in doing kiruv. He said, learn with me. And the son was not interested, and he said, I'm going to give you smicha. You're going to be called a rabbi. Before the kid knew anything. And Rebbe Yossi said, okay. I'll do that. I like, I like to be called a rabbi. I mean, that's like a status thing. I'll, I'll, I'll take status. That's good. And then that encouraged him to learn. And then the, the post came asked, how could he do that? You can't just give smicha like that. And the answer is, he uses discre- discretion, knowing human nature. Sometimes, by the way, this is good parenting technique. Sometimes you want to build up the person, and you might even do this by encouraging them early to make sure that, uh, you know, that in the end that they're going to come out. And indeed, Rabbi Yossi became on a very, he rose to a very high level of Torah. Remember Rabbi Tarfon? He had only one surviving descendant because he, he, he didn't speak carefully enough and, and all of his descendants died. His one surviving descendant was his daughter's son, who was also off the derech. And to Makar of this boy, Rabbi did something even more shocking. He said, uh, hey kid, you want to learn some Torah? And the kid said, no. He said, how about if you marry my daughter? Before he was from, he promised his daughter in marriage. That's quite a risk. Yeah, no, but I mean, it's, it's very similar to Rabbi Yochanan. Well, then they have some form of... Rabbi Yochanan promised his sister, and that's pretty bad too. Yeah, but at least Reb Reish Lakish was exp- had took the, taken the initiative. We're not there yet. You're ahead of us. We're going to tell the story soon enough. He jumped in. He saw... He oh, was yeah, drawn to Rabbi Yochanan. Here, it's Rabbi going over to Rabbi, Rabbi Tarfon's grandson. There doesn't seem to be any interest. It's, it, I think it's a slightly greater risk. In any case, in this case, it turned out well for Rebbe too, and, and the grandson of Rebbe Tarfan also became a, a, an Adam Gadol. The Gemara concludes that one who teaches his friend's son, Tyra, sits in the yeshiva Shomayla, sits in the heavenly yeshiva. We should look out for one another and our kids and our grandkids, and you should feel... I, mean, I, I remember feeling... Somebody, somebody, in, somebody in Telstam once said this. Uh, they were doing something very nice, helping look out for one of my kids. And we thanked them. We said, it's extraordinary what you're doing. And their response was, aren't they all of our kids? And, uh, and she was right. Um, he learned from Rebbe Lazar, Barabi Shimon. Remember Rebbe Lazar was the one who sat with the pans, all the Gemara and Babamitsiya. He sat with the pans of pus and ooze coming out of his body. He welcomed Yisurim Achai Bereyai. He yells out, he welcomed suffering in life as a way of understanding that that's, that's how by, if you can endure in this world, you'll get a special portion in the next world. So Rebbe learned from, do you remember Rebbe, when Rebbe Lazar died, Rebbe proposed to his widow? And do you remember her response? We did this last week. She had one of the great, uh, great responses, and it was not meant as a put down. She says, Klish Yishtamish Kodesh, a vessel that was used for holiness, Rebbe Lazar, Yishtamish Chol, somebody like you, you're profane next to his Kedusha. Rebbe apparently was on a lower level, the Gemara establishes there, than Rebbe Lazar, but all of which is relative. Next to you and me, these are giants. Next to one another, Rebbe, among other things, Rebbe didn't have what's called the Tsar de Ma'arta. He didn't have that suffering of, the, of that cave. Remember the cave for 12 and then 13 years? If you learn with Eliyahu Anavi for 13 years straight, you'd be, a, you'd be in a different dimension. That was Rebbe Lazar, with all the godless of Rebbe. So Rebbe learned from his role model, Rebbe Lazar, and he saw that Chavivin Yisurin, he saw that suffering was potentially with Dan L'Shem Shemaim were good things, and he accepts upon himself 13 years of suffering. His suffering was so sharp, was so, was so extreme, that he would go to relieve himself. It seems, if you learn the Gemara there, it seems that he suffered from the equivalent of gallstones, which are excruciating. We should know from such things, but um, his scream is described as being, you could, you, could, you could be overseas and you would hear Rebbe when he went to the outhouse. That's how, it, that's how intense his suffering was. The Gemara says, even so, yet another case where Rebbe Elazar was superior to Rebbe Yudanasi, that Rebbe Lazar, his were better because his suffering came through love. You have to define for me in a moment what love means. But he, he came, his came through love, whereas Rebbe's comes through a mycin. 
What does it mean that your suffering comes through love? What's pshat? He loved Hashem. He wanted to serve Hashem to the best of his capacity. And so he simply accepted the suffering as part of a Kaddish Baruch who sometimes, it's a very deep idea, that a Kaddish Baruch who sometimes visits upon his tzaddikim, Yisraim Shal'ava, to give them an even more exalted portion in Olam Haba. Uh, there's a very famous uh, Pnei Yoshua that, that delves into this idea. Rebis, though, came not because of this exalted stature, but because he messed up, he, he sinned, the Gemara tells us, and therefore it comes as a corrective, which is more what happens to most of us when bad things happen to nice people, but a lot of the time it's really because we cause it, and so the, this, the, the suffering is coming as a corrective. So with Rebbe, here's the story. Once, a calf that was designated for slaughter um, escaped its, its executioner and escaped and very cutely ran and took refuge under Rebbe's cloak. And that was a cute image in my mind. And Rebbe's response was to look at the little calf and say, Go back, lekach notzarta. You're created to be slaughtered. You're tonight's, you're tonight's steak dinner. And that's okay. That's your designation in life. So what are you worried about? The Gemara says he was right, and all of, all of the animals in creation are indeed here to serve mankind. But he was, he was too harsh for saying so. And not that animals have feelings and so on, but Rebbe, Rebbe as if he was callous with regards to animals, we talked this morning about Sarba Chaim, you have to be careful. Anybody who's callous with regards to animals, uh, the likelihood is that they'll be callous with regard, and, and unfeeling and un, unempathic when it comes to human beings. So um, Rebbe gets these 13 years of horrific suffering, and they culminate, the last thing that, that caused them to culminate is Rebbe evidently makes tshuva. His famous... Maidservant, the Amsa Shel Rebbe, was sweeping once, and without realizing it, she took a nest of um, a weasel's nest and uncovered it, and all these children, all these all these uh, babies, were scattered. And he cares for them, and he takes care of them. He picks them up and makes sure that they that they that they're given new life. And uh, as a result of that, after apparently having learned his lesson, so his suffering goes away. When a tzaddik suffers, though, it's good for the world. The Gemara tells us that when, during all the years that Rebbe Lazar had suffering, no person died. Period. Pretty good, huh? Huh? That's a good trick. No, it's not specified how many years. But during the years that he had that, no person died. And during the years that Rebbe suffered, there was never a lack of rain. In fact, there was so much water that you could pull a radish out of the ground and water would replace it, would come up from the ground as it were to show the, was there was, it was a great thing. In other words, it was, it was, it was saturated, it was overflowing with good, with blessings because of the tzaddikim. Rebbe was so wise, even his servants were wise, and he's this famous figure that comes up in several Gemaras, the Amsa the Rebbe, who was, who was still energetic even in her 90s. She's this powerhouse kind of a figure. Very colorful figure. And Chazal asked her Shilas. She knew Torah. She's up there with Tavi Avdo, right? So she's this great person. Um, a couple of examples. We know that a Jew can only be a, an Evan Ivory, right? The Jewish slave, only when there's a Yovel. Um, but she teaches that an Evan Knani, which she, she, she qualified as a non-Jewish slave, they exist at all times, right? They can exist, they can exist even without a base of Mikdash, even outside the land of Eretz Israel. They asked her about technical definitions. There's a word they didn't know, chalaglugot. No, excuse me. Chaluglugos, excuse me, I mispronounced it. Chaluglugos, which are kind of vegetable. They asked her what a mitate is. Anybody know in modern Hebrew? Very good. They know a broom, which still is a word that we use today in modern Hebrew. And you have Amsa the Rebbe to thank for that definition. Once she saw an adult man striking his child, and she put him into Nidui. She excommunicated him. You didn't want to mess with this woman. Like, she was, power, she was a powerful person, right? So she put him in, she excommunicated him. Why? She held a grudge like every woman does. Yeah. No, no, because the he man who hits his child, no, was over in Lifneiver. He risked putting a stumbling block that the child would hit him back, and a child who hits, who hits his parent and causes a wound is, is Chayv Misa. So at the end of Rebbe's life, Rebbe is dying a slow, hard death, and he suffers daily. And all the rabbis of the generation, you remember the rabbis all ate. Rebbe was so generous, they all ate at his table. Right? He, had, he had everybody over. And they're all davening for his sustained life. And she doesn't see that as a good thing. So she does something quite radical. Gemara Brachos tells us she takes a big pot up to the roof and she smashes it. She throws it down. And in the middle of their davening, they hear this crash, and they're all momentarily distracted. And in that moment that they're no longer davening for Rebbe to live, he dies. 
It wasn't. But she felt his, it's an interesting question, and it raises the question of what, what's today called euthanasia, which is mercy killing. Generally speaking, the attitude is that life is precious, and even if it involves suffering, we recognize suffering is part and parcel. That's what we do. We're alive, so we suffer. That's not something you can avoid, and even if a person's a paraplegic in the hospital, Elena, but these things happen sometimes. And such a person, they can say Kriyishma, they can do mitzvahs. Just by being able to wake up and have a conscious moment of saying Kriyishma, that val- another Kriyishma, another day, validates life. But here already was almost a supernatural sustaining of a life. Rebbe was on, death, on his deathbed, he was a ghost, and their continued davening kept him alive by distracting them. She wasn't going against Hashem's will. Hashem can keep him alive if he wants to. All she was doing was, since their tefillah obviously was so powerful, she was distracting them. Uh, and Hashem apparently agreed with her, and Rebbe died. When he died is a big discussion. It's not so clear. S- some put it 188, 192, 217, 219, depending on some of the secular sources. Sometime near the end of the second century, beginning of third century, Rebbe and the Sanhedrin were many years in Beit Sharim that I described. Anybody? Nobody's been to Beit Sharim, the center of Israel. It's great. We really, I really take you there. The Gemara says, Tzedek, Tzedek, Tirdo, talks about the different great sages of different times. When you want to find righteousness, go after the sages. And one of the examples is, go to Beit Sharim and you'll find it there because Rebbe was there. And whenever there's a great man, a great tzaddik, so you'll find justice as well. For his last 17 years, they moved to Tzipori, which is a little bit further east. And the Sanhedrin moved as well. He asked on his deathbed, he said, Hoshiva yeshiva I want a yeshiva established over my burial place 30 days after I die, after Shloshim in other words. Um, and his concern was that he knew that he was such a central, pivotal figure in history, he was concerned they would over-mourn. Where was there a precedent in Jewish history for mourning too much? Moshe Rabbeinu. And they forgot all those dinim, and Osnail was able to recreate it, but he knew that they could, they could mourn too much, and he didn't want that. He wanted the yeshiva. By the way, in Beit Sharim, you can go, and there's a place that very reasonably is the real kever of Rabbi Yudha Nasi, and there's a place on top that kind of looks like it might have been a yeshiva. That's, that's pretty thrilling, and actually, I, what I do there is we learn all the Torah of Rebbe. I, a, lot of the, a lot of the stories I just told you now, we go on top of Rebbe's kever, and we, uh, we, we learn his Torah there. If I take you there, don't give away the end. I do it as a mystery. I don't, I, don't, I don't give them all the details. In any case, the day that Rebbe dies, remember Hashem never leaves the world empty. So the same day over in Bavel, Rav Yehuda is born, the great Amora named Rav Yehuda. The Gemara in Ksubos tells us that when he dies, the Kedusha was nullified, whatever that means exactly. Um, the Gemara in Sota tells us that Anava v'yeras chait, humility and fear of sin vanish, the suffering doubled. His funeral was one of the great famous funerals of all history. It was attended by the entire generation. People came from Bavel, from far and wide, to attend the funeral. A number is not given, but given what we can assess of the time, probably hundreds of thousands of Jews attended. It was unparalleled, probably all the way until 1986, when Rav Moshe Feinstein's funeral took place in Har uh, in Jerusalem, Ir Kodesh, then they estimate that somewhere between 250 and 350,000 Jews att- uh, attended. In 2013, Rav Yosef arguably was the largest of all the funerals, but it's hard to know. Some estimates are as low as 300,000, some say 800,000. The question is, is, who cares? And the second question is, how do we estimate, does everybody who was, everybody was present in Jerusalem, are they counted in the funeral? If they stood on their, on their balcony, that, mean, that counts as having attended? Then you can, be, you can be very generous with the numbers. In any case, great men, certainly worthy of great funerals. Um, and the Gemara Moed Katan says another unprecedented reality, when Rebbe died, everyone in the generation tore Korea. Usually we, tell, we tear for our parents, but uh, Rebbe, Rebbe was extraordinary. Um, he's buried in Beit Sharim, according to the Gemara in Kisubos. Tour guides love this Gemara because um, they refute the popular tradition that he's buried in Sipori. There is a tradition that he's buried in Sipori, but the Gemara says he was in Beit Sharim. One of Rebbe's signature achievements, and something we should take time now to talk about briefly, is the Great Mishnah, which is the culmination of a process that we've already been talking about for hundreds of years. Certainly, if you have to attribute the Mishnah to one person, 
Rebbe's the logical person, I'm going to talk about his role, but there's another person that without whom, arguably, the Mishnah would never have happened, and that is Antoninus, Antoninus Pius. Well, Antoninus uh, and, and his, his tolerant policies and his love of Rebbe, uh, how could the Mishnah possibly have been made possible? Because you, you have to realize, in order to achieve something like this, this requires time, it requires a convention, everybody's got to be there. If you're going to be oppressed, persecuted, the, 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 you can't produce something of, of such a, a work of such, of such uh, tremendous status and, 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 and uh, such an ambi- ambitious project. Now, let, let's take it for a second out here. We talked about this before. We, the, the Mishnah is Asr Diraisa, right? It's Asr because oral Torah, Moshe Rabbeinu received the Torah at Ar Sinai, he received the written Torah, the five books, and he received the oral tradition that up until this moment, and we keep referring to this list of the Masorah, has been indeed transmitted orally. It's not meant to be written down. In fact, the Pasuk in Dvarim tells us. Dvarim Shebal Peh, you're not, actually, excuse me, it's, it's, it's not a Pasuk Dvarim. It's, um, the Gemara tells us in Gitin that you cannot write this. And the explanation, why can't you write such things down? We require the relationship between a Rebbe and a Talmud for the Torah to be transmitted. You can't know, just like you can't learn to tie your shoelaces from a book, you can't know the many, many, dimen- what? Good luck. Your shoelaces from a it's so hard. You need a real. That's how I learned. Are you serious? Okay, so you guys are extraordinary. So I'll take it back. But you hear the idea. So much of Torah, so much of Torah. You you need living, breathing rabbis. You have shilas. I don't understand. How do I wear my tefillin? Am I tefillin okay? Am I tzitzi? There, Torah is covers every facet of life. So how do you do that? Unless unless you have a guide, unless you have somebody instructing you every step of the way. For this matter, not only is oral Torah never supposed to be written, it's supposed to be transmitted orally, but um, even the written Torah, do you know this is halacha till today, that we can't, if you're a Baal Torah, you cannot read it by heart. It's usur if you read the Torah and somebody read it without looking, and some of these guys, some of these Baal Torah, they really know their stuff, they've memorized it, and they don't even look at the word. So now this is a kasha then. What, what, how do we explain the Mishnah? So the whole, the whole existence of the Mishnah. So this is a question that's addressed in the Mishnah itself, in Brachos. We learn it's an extraordinary exception. It's the Pasuk in Tehillim, There are times sometimes to do for Hashem. They're breaking your Torah. And if, sometimes you have to break the Torah in order to keep the Torah and uphold it. And in this case, in this case, the, and we've been talking about this, the discriminations, the persecutions were so great that there was a real fear that all of the oral tradition would be lost. And so it was critical to commit it to writing. It seems the only mechanism that exists is to preserve the complex oral Torah is the Mishnah. The Mishnah is written in a style that makes it likely and, and conducive to memorize. It's written with mnemonics, all kinds of uh, memory hints and triggers to help you master it. Have you all memorized Mishnayos? Is that ever in a project like in Yeshiva Day School or something that you ever did? It's a great thing to do. And when you, when, if you, do me a favor, go learn a Mishnah. Go learn a Mishnah. Uh, you're all learning something for YY? Right? Take up a Mishnah, pick up a Mishnah and, and, and learn it by heart. I, I think you'll have this experience, this is generally my experience, when I try to memorize you start to see just in the way everything is so beautifully organized. It's so tight. It's so logical. But they're meant to be memorized. They wanted people to walk around with the Mishnahs in their pocket, as it were, to preserve the oral Torah. Now, there's a machlokis about what Rebbe's role was in the Mishnah. Rambam says like this. The Rambam's view, we find this in the introduction to his Yad, to, to the Mishnah Torah. He said, until Rebbe, until Rebbe Yudha Nasi, nobody had ever written a book to disseminate the oral Torah. His book was the book and it was unprecedented. He personally collected all previous traditions, all the laws, and he personally composed the Mishnah. That's the Rambam. And it's not the widely accepted view. We include it because the Rambam said it, but it's not the main view. The main view is, initially, it's said in the name of Rav Shrira Gaon. Before the Rambam, the Rav Shrira Gaon gave the other view that's really the one that most of the Rishonim accept. We're going to hear a lot from Rav Shrira Gaon, one of the major uh, Gaonim in the 10th century. He writes in his Igeris that actually, and this is kind of in this, I've been presenting the story with this assumption that it's Rav Shrira Gaon's view. 
a lot of people were involved in the mission. This has been a project that the Gedoli Hador have been involved with. They've been on board all the way back to the period of Zugos. They started a very basic preliminary process of committing, of, of writing down the, um, just for their own internal use, the, 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 some of the ideas of the oral Torah. But by Rebbe Gamliel in Yavne, it broke out and this became a major project of recording it and trying to put it in pithy, clear terms that later would be called the Mishnayos. So then what did Rebbe do? If this is true, Rebbe's contribution was formidable. Don't, don't understate Rebbe. He created the standardized authoritative text, meaning he gathered all these loosely collected written bits and pieces here and there, and Rebbe gave, uh, he edited it. He put it all together and said, this is what's included and that's not. He did not write it single-handedly. That's from Shurugaon against the Rambam's view, and that's the view that's accepted by most Rishonim. In a sense, as brief as the Mishnah is, and you can see this as you're learning Gemara, the brevity of the Mishnah, they did such a fantastic job of packing it all in, that in later generations, I'm going to repeat this, you're going to hear this talk about the Gemara, in later generations they did too good of a job and they often don't understand what the Mishnah means. And the Mishnah has ambiguities and double, triple meanings sometimes. And so if you ever notice, why is the Mishnah on the page of the Talmud so compact? And the Gemara sometimes flows pages and pages and pages. It's like it's a backlash response. And they're saying, well, you know, as, as, as brief as the Mishnah was, we're going to now get everything. And it doesn't matter how wordy we are in the Gemara. They had a totally different agenda. We find that one of the, one of the indications that Rav Shura Gaon makes sense is that the Mishnah often cites the later generations in formulating the halachos. Remember our top ten list that we just decided last week? And you notice the disproportionate in you know, Rabbi Yehuda, Babar Eli, and Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, and Rabbi Yossi. They're mostly the later generations. But from this perspective, it's not that they invented their ideas. They're not the first authors of their ideas that they're espousing. What are they, rather? They, they are the final... Um, they put the finishing touches on what had mostly been compiled by previous generations already. And then why did they, why did they get credit for it? Why is it in their name? So the, the Gemara and Sota tells us if they, um, in the same way that Rebbe gets credit as if he wrote the Mishnah, it's not literal. It says, it says um, somebody who finishes a task is given credit for having done the task. The Gemara explains. Um, somebody, somebody else comes and puts the finishing touches on. It's like, it's so true by a, mit, by a mitzvah. If somebody starts a mitzvah, but then one person completes it, it's the one who completes it who gets, his, who gets the ultimate credit for it, even though obviously the first guy gets some reward as well. But you want to finish the task, and that's, that's the same spirit we give credit to the later generations for completing what the early generations had started. In his own humility, nowhere in, do we find in the Mishnah that Rebbe speaks, speaks in the first person. It's not like he wrote his book. He doesn't speak in the first person. And not only that, he doesn't appear so frequently in his humility. Um, it's always, as Rebbe says, the third person, as if he's just another guy. Um, he gives himself relatively little prominence over the other great denying. It's his basting that seals the final format of the Mishnah with one exception. There's one exception a little bit after Rebbe. The Gemara Vodazar talks about this. We learn a law that Rebbe and his Beistin permitted non-Jewish oil. Earlier, non-Jewish oil was off limits, and Rebbe and his Beistin, after the Mishnah was completed, allowed the non-Jewish oil. Because that became accepted, they added it to the Mishnah as if Rebbe had put it in the Mishnah. But everything else was definitive and final in the Mishnah. The style of the Mishnah is described to us by the Kuzari, in the Sefer Kuzari. He says that sometimes, and if, you, if you're, anybody's a fan of learning Mishnayos, you should all be blessed to learn a lot of Mishnayos. Um, if you learn Mishnah, among the many advantages you'll have in life is you'll see the godless of Chazal, how they knew everything in rigorous detail. It covers everything in, in the kind of detail that's not humanly possible to know. Clearly it's from a Kaddish Baruch Hu. How do they know the reproductive process of human beings? How do they know how animals, the, the, the various qualities that each animal, each species of, 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 of animal somehow, they act in a certain way? And it's all in the Mishnah. It's an incredibly inspiring thing to do to learn the Mishnah. Sometimes the Mishnahs flow in, 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 with incredible logic, but sometimes they flow you know, from Indian to Indian, Boso Indian. They go from topic to topic, and sometimes you think, whoa, whoa, what's going on? Like, it seems to be off the wall, the stream, almost stream of consciousness associations being made, 
The Guzari explains the ideas that the Mishnah was meant to cover everything. Some topics were huge and were worthy of having their own separate tractate. So you have Ksubos, because they have the discussion of Ksubos, and that's, that's the central address for it. But some topics are not huge, don't, or don't merit their own Masechta, but have to be brought up somewhere. So they'll find tangential, seemingly tangential ways of bringing them up uh, from one thought to another, and that's, that's the way the Mishnah is organized. There are indeed no extra words in the Mishnah, and that's why the Chazal make diukim, like we, much like we make a diuk in a pasuk, there's no accidental word or structure or even letter, so too you can do that with Mishnah. You can't do that quite the same with Gemara, because Gemara was not written with the same painstaking care to make sure that every word was just precise, but the Mishnah really was. Not only are they not extra words, but a lot of, a lot of the ideas of the Mishnah um, contain miyutin and ribuim, they exclude things or they'll include things just by a phrase. For example, um, <clears throat> Aaron stayed awake pretty nicely in class today. That was a mute. What do you understand from my statement? Somebody out there probably didn't stay awake in class today. But in other words, sometimes you'll have just a, a declarative statement like that in the Mishnah and you can derive new laws just by inference. And, that, that's also, that's, and, and the Gemara will have to elucidate all those things. Do you know what Zman Nakat stands for, it's a famous abbreviation in Chazal, Zman Nakat, it actually, those six letters are an abbreviation for Shisha Sidrei Mishnah, the six orders of the Mishnah, otherwise referred to as Shas, Shisha Sidrei Mishnah, and Zman Nakat, Zion stands for Zroim, seeds, right, because that's where the agricultural laws are in that Seder of Mishnah, Mem, Moed, the holidays, festivals, Shabbos, um, Nun, well, this, that's the second one. What's the first nun? Nashin. All matters of issues, all matters of marriage and status. Um, what's the second nun? Nazikin, Pekuf. Kudshim. Kudshim, Amnuk Beis Mikdash, everything related. And, and finally, Taharos. Taharos. Matters of Tuma and Tara. That's Zman Nakat. That's the mnemonic to remember the total picture. In, this, is, this is very interesting. In the Gemach, the first word in the Mishnah, what's the first Mesechta? Brachos. The first word, famously in Brachos, me'e masa, So the Arizal teaches us that in the word, the first word in the Mishnah, um, in Gematria, or excuse me, not only in Gematria, the letters can be rearranged to say, no, no, it's Gematria, I'm wrong, it's not the letters. In Gematria, you can rearrange the, 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 the same Gematria, you find Ani Yehuda Kadosh. I am the Holy Yehuda, perhaps Rabbi Yehuda, although that's, Sounds like maybe somebody else put it in there as an honor of him because he would be too humble to write that. But I am Yehuda Kadosh would be the same gematria. Um, ordinarily, my last comment on the Mishnah, ordinarily when we write things down, the great, one of the great fears of recording the oral Torah is when you write something down, you freeze it and minimize it. And what was previously rich and flowing as an oral Torah has to do because you're always answering new shilas, new... new Situations that come up in life, life being dynamic as it is, it has to be a, a breathing, open, organic structure. So the minute you commit it to writing, there's a terrible, understandable fear that you're going to freeze it. And then what's going to be left of the oral tradition? But we find with the Mishnah, and we find this with other great works of halacha that were written after this, is that Shas today remains open, vital, generative, and it's, up, it's the source of expounding and constant application to all new situations, new times, new circumstances, new places. And, and, and that's the nature of the Torah itself. The oral Torah indeed remains as, as, as vital as, as it's ever been. Um, tomorrow we'll talk more about Jake's question about the Bryces, the last generation of the Tanaim, and then the early generations of the Amoraim and our Gemara.